Hello, hello, beloved Salonista listener, wherever you are in the world, in the streets of Hong Kong or lying in a hammock somewhere in South America, get yourself a drink and listen to some stories. I'm Damien Barr and you're listening to the podcast of my live literary salon, where I tempt the world's finest writers to read from their latest, greatest works and share their own stories. Today's podcast comes to you from sunny Brighton, where I live, where we had a special literary salon for Little Green Pig, a brilliant writing and mentoring charity for young people. Do check them out. In this episode, we had the privilege of premiering The Gender Games, the memoir from the beautiful and the brave Juno Dawson. Juno has written many best-selling novels and the brilliant non-fiction books Mind Your Head and This Book Is Gay. She joins me at Hotel Divan to give a very moving and challenging first reading from her groundbreaking memoir, discussing, as she says, the problems with men and women from someone who has been both. So here is our very own Wonder Woman, Juno Dawson. I'm comfortable, thank you. Um, so I know this is your first reading and you've got three bits that you're going to read for us. Yes, three short little volivants of delicious memoir goodness. Okay, yeah. this is a person from Yorkshire sharing their feelings. <laughs> you can say, yeah, good luck with that. I was going to say, it's going to be blood from a stone, but okay, let's, see, let's see if we can make people cry and stuff. Okay, let's go. Where do okay. we start? Where, where do you want me to start? Which one do you want um, to start? We'll start, let's start with the, the Spice Girls. Okay, we'll start with them. the Spice Girls. My true female awakening came in 1996 with the advent of the Spice Girls. Bear with me, I actually mean it. (laughs) If you were not a teenager in the 1990s, you're not going to get this. In the way that I do not get Zoella and vlogging, skip this whole section. To outsiders, the Spice Girls look like fluff, like cotton candy and e-numbers. But to those of us who were inside the bubble, they were beyond influential. Even global megastar Adele acknowledges the impact of the Spice Girls. Speaking on James Corden's late, 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 only two lates, late, late show, she said, I'm not going to do an Adele accent. It was a huge moment in my life. Five ordinary girls who did so well and got out. I was like, I want to get out. I don't know what I want to get out of, but I want to get out. Up until the Spice Girls, I had sought refuge in acceptable alternatives. I was definitely never a boy's boy, but it was acceptable for boys to like blur, placebo, or pulp. Are they okay, Alexis? They're great. They pass it. I'm not the answer of size, There are always acceptable alternatives. I first saw the Spice Girls on top of the Pops in 96. The group were off on a promotional visit to Japan and were filmed lip-syncing for their lives in some sort of ornamental temple garden thing. Instantly, I was hooked. The colour, the high kicks, each girl's individual look. The cameraman seemed to have ADHD. I only glimpsed each band member for long enough to know there was one with an afro, one with red hair, a blonde, one in a Liverpool kit, and 
another one. <laughs> the fact they were a band with five women was different enough. Sherwood had internal and vogue, but there weren't really bubblegum pop. I was outwardly a boy, so I had to pretend I didn't like the Spice Girls, except as possibly masturbation material. I shunned them in the same way that I shunned Take That and Boyzone. I mean, zigga zigga, what does it even mean? I would lie shamelessly. But over the summer of 96, I just gave in. I couldn't resist. I started buying smash hits and Wheel of Pop magazine. Everyone agreed that Wannabe was catchy, but the follow-up, Say You'll Be There, sealed the deal. I was a fully-fledged Spice Girl slash boy. Initially, my heart belonged to Jerry, but I was oddly spellbound by Midnight Misuki, and my love for Posh soon developed into deranged pointing and pounting in front of the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> it was not okay for a boy to like the Spice Girls as much as I did, but I couldn't keep it in. About this time, I'd met Kerry, Phyllis and Beth, and stopped giving a shit about what people thought about me anyway. I was forced, for want of a better phrase, to shit or get off the pot and pick an identity. In fact, the day I told anyone I thought I might be gay was the day I bought the CD single version of Stop in 1998, cruelly denied a number one spot by Run DMC versus Jason Nevins. <laughs> <laughs> and where are they now? <laughs> that afternoon, having baked a treacle tart in our enrichment class, a Wednesday afternoon activity designed to strengthen our university applications, everyone knows that Oxbridge are always on the lookout for a skilled treacle tart baker. <laughs> I was walking home with Kerry. Vastly more cosmopolitan than I, Kerry often caught the National Express to Manchester to hang out with her then boyfriend. There, she told me, she would regularly hang out in queer spaces with actual homosexuals. By the Leeds-Liverpool Canal, I broke down. I think I might be... The last word was barely audible. Okay, that's the... Okay. Related. With technical HD hindsight, it's clear my own struggles with gender started the day I was born into a world that had already done a real number on. So it's necessary to go back to the very start. Jesus knows I did not want to write a memoir. I think you should be over 80 before you are allowed to write a memoir, unless, number one, you are a former Spice Girl. <laughs> or number two, have changed or shaped the world in some way like a Spice Girl. <laughs> I do not claim to have done any of these things. For me, in the middle of my gender transition, transitioning is in fact incredibly tedious. I'd give anything to have a day off. That being said, number one, childhood stories are relatable and I want you to like me. Number two, gender is a paedophile. Gender fucks kids. I was fucked by gender as a kid. You were fucked by gender, and this happened in childhood. Therefore, grudgingly, I accept we might need to explore my childhood in order to better understand how I became the most beautiful transsexual in half. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, your final snippet. And this is, Damien asked me to do this bit because it's, re it's relevant to your interests. The Brighton years. I suppose I should explain about Brighton. 
If there's anywhere in the United Kingdom that LGBTQ people can flourish, it's Brighton. In 1783, Prince George, who would later become the Prince Regent, first visited the trendy seaside town, already notorious for its wine, food and parties. The Prince had been told that bathing in salt water, very fashionable at the time, sort of like juicing kale, was the best course of action for his gout. George was spellbound by Brighton and commissioned a ludicrous pavilion as his holiday home in 1787, partly as somewhere he could enjoy sexy fun time with his mistress, Maria Fitzherbert. In the centuries that followed, Brighton maintained its somewhat seedy reputation as the good time girl of the South Coast. Having fallen into disrepair in the mid-20th century, it suddenly became quite fashionable in the 1990s as an affordable escape for burnt-out Londoners who fancied doing a load of MDMA by the seaside. <laughs> of course, this gentrification rendered Brighton unaffordable within about five years. Today, Brighton is the closest thing we have to Neverland. The lack of private sector industry, we do have Amex, Booper, some games companies and hotels, and many, many call centres. In fact, if you got somebody cold calling you in 2003 trying to sell you Sky Insurance, that was me. <laughs> Means graduates party relentlessly while working in minimum wage jobs well into their 30s. Either that or they give up and move to London for media jobs. I expect if we were to look at vegans per square mile, Brighton would be pretty much top of the world rankings. <laughs> A local jerk is asking any Brighton resident the name of their garage band. They're in one. I'm allowed to tease Brighton because I've lived here for 12 years. You're not. Brighton has the third largest LGBT community in the UK, after London and Manchester. But, as it's much smaller than both of those other cities, it feels a lot, well, queerer. It's undiluted. Having lived in London and Brighton, there really is something special about Brighton. Yes, it might feel somewhat provincial in comparison to the capital, but there's also a warmth, an empathy, of an acceptance of queerness that goes far beyond tolerance. A few weeks before I moved to Brighton in 2002, Kerry sent me a copy of Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City with a note saying, they say Brighton is our answer to San Francisco. And I think she's right. On arriving in Brighton, I truly started my evolution. Marianne Singleton, to Mouse Tolliver, to Anna Madrigal. <laughs> this was the first time, no offence to Bangor, I was fully able to explore my queer identity. Even in my bedsit days, I started, inspired by Carrie Bradshaw, to experiment with vintage clothes. There were some major looks involving string vests, neons, leg warmers, sweat wristbands, flares, and the aforementioned bleached mullet. <laughs> yeah. At the time, I mistakenly believed anything from a vintage clothes store was automatically good. Jesus fucking Christ, I looked a mess. <laughs> that said, it was a change. All through school, and much of college, I tried to get by with my head down. Now, I didn't care who looked in my direction. In fact, I encouraged it. In a town where men proudly walk around in crotchless leather chaps, I was somewhat on the conservative side. <laughs> You'll have noticed by now that all my friends are girls. It has always been thus. When I arrived in Brighton, Kerry thoughtfully set me up with some of her course mates from Sussex Uni who she thought I'd get on with. Sam, Sarah, Kat and Nick are still my closest friends, so she curated well. Now, at the time, both Kerry and Sarah's boyfriends were in terribly serious garage bands. <clears throat> bored of endless conversations about the small faces and the velvet underground. 
not a, not a clue. We decided to rebel and form our own band. As a joke, we started Cherry Filth and the Death Legs. Initially, it was meant to be a piss take, but as my friend Fee had a keyboard, Kerry had a bass, and Sarah could sing, I could sort of sing, so why not? We got together and had a couple of rehearsals. I wrote our first ever song, my first writing, inspired by a recent encounter on the now antiquated gay dating website, Gaydar. Having never seen South Park, I didn't know what Mr. Hankey referred to. <laughs> I clicked on Mr. Hankey's profile and with utter horror was confronted by a picture of a man eating poop. This inspired our first song, Poo Lips. <laughs> <laughs> this is why it's a really short-lived career, just saying. <laughs> Poo Lips. I got to thinking, what if you discovered that your boyfriend was a secret poo eater? <laughs> poo Lips, which would eventually become the song we were known for, featured the following lyrics. It gets worse, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Let me tell you about this boy. Thought he was my pride and joy. When it was cold, he'd give me a sweater. I thought it couldn't get much better. But the feeling couldn't last that long. Everything's so different. <laughs> Kerry is here and she knows where this is going. Um, everything's day two go wrong. Because when I took you to meet my mother, I found your secret fetish for the other. You're giving me poo lips in the morning. You're giving me poo lips in the evening. I wanted some chew lips, but all you ever gave me was poo lips. There's <laughs> <laughs> more. I'll skip, I'll skip to the end. I mean, come on. In fact, we'll just stop there. Not, it's not going to get better than that, is it? <laughs> on MySpace because we just don't know how to deactivate our MySpace. <laughs> it's still there. I, we, can't, we can't stop it. I'm going to find MySpace tonight and I'm going to listen. I think quite a few people will. <laughs> I do. wanted tulips and you gave me tulips. <laughs> okay. So, Hi. just taking a break. <laughs> it's um, you, you talk about gender in this book um, as a character, you, you, and you, in fact, gender, gender as he, and you give gender a capital G, and you say gender isn't just screwing over trans people, it's screwing everybody. Hmm. How, how did it screw you um, when your life started, and, and how are you fighting it now? Oh my gosh, that's many, many questions. I know, well, we can unpack them. Um, so yeah, gender is a he, because I realised... All my life I have been told messages. It's like you're tuned into Radio Gender. And for the first 30 years of my life I was listening to like Boy FM and I was told this is what a boy should be, this is what a boy should look like, this is what a boy should do, this is how a boy should think. And then, you know, four years ago I started listening to the, the woman woman's hour. And <laughs> Jenny Mary is a big supporter. And um I was, you know, realised that the messages I was being told, you know, be thinner, be prettier, wear this, wear this. Actually, that, that was patriarchy, you know, it was, you know, this is the way that men want women to be. Mm -hmm. And that was why gender doesn't suddenly become a woman halfway through the book. Because I think actually the way... I think maintaining the gender status quo most benefits white straight men. 
So that's why gender is a man throughout. But yeah, so go, go on. No, I mean, it's interesting hearing yeah, Alexis talking at the beginning of his experience of, you know, of his diary and of going in to see you know, school after seeing Adam Ant. That's, you know, that's exactly what we're talking about. That's the way that, that, that men are also harmed by the idea of gender, not as much as, as women, but are also limited and also, and also damaged. I think when I did, at the end, so the last chapter of the book is, I spoke to about a thousand people, I surveyed them, and asked them, men and women, to say the ways in which they thought gender had benefited them yeah. and the ways in which it had hindered them. And everybody was able to identify both, but on both sides, there was much stronger response to the way that they felt they'd been held back or damaged by gender. And so for women, it was just not being listened to, of being patronised, of being, of even expert women having their expertise explained to them, of not feeling safe, just a pervading feeling of danger that has been, since being a small girl, that, you know, girls can't do this, girls can't walk by themselves at night, girls shouldn't be doing this, they shouldn't be buying houses. Whereas for men, it was a sense of a more trapped feeling of, I have, I have a lot of feelings that I feel I cannot talk about um, because I would be told to man up or I would be told that boys don't cry or that I would be told, you know, that I was gay or whatever. And... Yeah, and you know that's the way that a lot of people confuse gender and sexuality right from the get-go. So. And is that is that what you did? Do you think that you, at the point where you came out as a gay man, do you think you were making that that confusion? Um, was it just not a question that you'd asked yourself at that point? Yeah, I mean, I think gender and sexuality are separate, but they're like they're like sisters, not twins. You know, they're kind of they're they're very they're related, but they are separate things, and. You know, it was the 90s. I did not know what a trans person was. I'd read an issue of Bella at my mum's GP where a transgender woman had had loads of surgery to look like a Barbie doll. And she'd had some surgery, and very fixated on surgery, she had some surgery so that she had a self-lubricating vagina. And that was kind of, that was my experience of a trans woman mm. by the time I first came out. And so, you know, the, the problem was, so my knowledge of myself was much, much younger. So I knew when I was about three or four years old, I, sh I should have been a girl. And I used to ask my parents a lot, you know, when, when will I become a girl? You know, and, you know, I used to sort of think to myself, you know, if I, if I behave myself, I will become a girl. Um, and that was when I was super young. But then puberty kicked in. And like all pubescent people... Can I just, people, just take you back a sec? What yeah. did your parents, how did they respond to you when you, when you told them that was how you felt? Well, they, they didn't have any knowledge either. So I was just told that's not what boys do and that's not how boys should be and to shush. And I know as an adult now that, I, you know, my parents being from Bradford, you know, they were really worried. They thought there was something wrong. Mm. And, you know, when you, have, when you have a child who has something wrong with it, you take it to a doctor, you know. And so I was, you know, taken to a doctor and there was talk of seeing a psychologist but it never quite sort of came to fruition. Um, but then, yeah, like when puberty kicked in, you know, what adolescent young person isn't a mess of hormones? And so I managed to do one thing. So from the soup of puberty, I managed to figure out that I fancied guys. And, you know, I got that right. And there was a word for that. You know, if everybody tells you you're a boy and you fancy boys, mm -hmm. you know, we'd had Will and Grace, we'd had Crow's Folk, we'd had Dawson's Creek. And so I thought, oh, well, that, that, must, that must be it. You know, that, that has got to be the way forward. And it was only way much, much later 
when I actually, you know, even, you know, post, like Nadia on Big Brother and post, you know, those sorts of people on TV, it was only when I met real life trans people who were about my age that I realised, oh, this is a thing that real people from Bradford do, actually. Yeah. This is a thing that that is doable. And so, yeah, I mean, it was, I was just kind of quite late to the game, I guess. Um, you, you say at some point in the book that, I mean, because you, you've been living um, as a gay man, an out gay man, a teacher, mm-hmm. and you've had a very successful career, you wanted to be a writer and align your identity with how you felt you were, um, and so you said that this, in some level, felt hugely destructive. What's Potentially that? making a transition. Yeah, oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, it's a super selfish thing as well, like nobody else is benefiting you know, like, I'm not helping society or anything by doing this, and it's kind of, so you're doing something that's super, super selfish, you know that by... Is it selfish, or is it just self-care? Oh, self-care, that's, yeah, it's very now, it's very very modern. Just thought I'd throw that out there, it's not here. Um, yeah, it was just kind of, it was, there was, and I I don't know, you know, being trans is not a choice, and let's get that right out there for Twitter right now, but um, there was a choice. And, you know, I figured out, it was about four years ago that I first started having, and maybe even a bit longer now, that I started having conversations with a couple of friends. I was still living in London, mm. and I was seeing a guy, so that was an added complication. And so I started having conversations, but I thought, can I be asked? Like, sure, you're, you will, you're a girl, you know, and you're always going to be a girl, but so what? You know, Maybe you could just carry on the way you are. You know, I'd started writing. I had the first five books out, I think. You know, you could just get on with it. But then I just sort of thought, oh, God, you know, what if you get to 70 and you look like this sad raisin and then you decide to do it? I was like, why not do it now where you kind of have, like, a whole second life ahead of you? Why mm. not? Why not just do it? And it was, it was Isla Holdham, and she's in the book, and she okayed it, so I'm allowed to say who it was. And I met her via Working for Attitude. And what's really cool about Isla, if you don't know, she was the RAF pilot who co-piloted Prince William. Mm. And so the son kindly put her on the front page, as in, like, Will's trans chopper shocker. <laughs> you know, all, all now in the headline, kind of. And, um... And she'd been through this awful time, you know, she'd been outed by a tabloid paper. And I met her and she was just really chill and she was with her mum and she was still a pilot. She works for Bournemouth Police Force now. And it was just really cool to just sort of see a trans woman just having her life, you Mm. know. And she wasn't on a reality TV show and she wasn't Caitlyn Jenner or Andrea Pejic. She was just living her life. And even more importantly, her date for the Attitude Pride Awards was her mum. And so I could see that her family had survived and that actually, you know, and that, that was the biggie, you know, it was like, is this going to kind of like, going to really, really kind of cause trouble at home, kind of, um, and having seen Isla with her mum, I was like, well, I think it's, it's worth giving it a go. But that said, you know, myths about being transgender is that, you know, you're like, oh, hi, I recently decided I was trans, let's book some surgery dates. You know, it just doesn't work like that. Like I say, we sort of, four years on and I've just had my first bit of surgery so it's kind of like you know I've had four years and a lot of therapy to really kind of make sure this is the right thing for me to do and you know I've never once looked back never once um it's very shocking reading the book about how much um how long you have to wait 
and how many other people's approval of who you are you have to secure, particularly when you compare to the process of, of coming out as a gay man. So let, let's, let's talk about the, the, the kind of two coming outs that, 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 that you've done so far in, in your life. How do, how do they compare? Do they compare? Did one prepare you for the other? Was, was one harder or easier? Um, I think by the time I sort of spoke to people about my sexuality, you know, which is still accurate, I still fancy men, got that one right, tick. Um, <laughs> there was, like I said, there, there had already been, you know, it was, it was post-Ellen, as, as we now call it, you know, there was a different sort of culture, and, you know, we were post-AIDS, and people had an, which you wrote about so brilliantly in Maggie and Me, by the way, which very much struck a chord, that leaflet, that fucking pamphlet, yeah. that pamphlet with John Hurt squashing you with his gravestone. Yeah, you're all gonna die. Yeah. There is a disease that will kill you. Um, so we'd, we'd got through that. It was the 90s. It was fine. And actually, it was my mum who kind of initiated that. So anybody and everybody knew. You know, so I'd, you know, that conversation about the Spice Girls, you know, I would have been like 16. And so all the university, I was out, completely out. Was Yeah, it was things. So the last people I came out to were my parents. And by that point, I was financially independent from them. So they're kind of, the stakes weren't that high, actually. Yeah. And I think when I was about 16, I bleached my hair, which is essentially coming out without words to your parents. <laughs> and so we'd kind of done that five years before we even talked about it. So I think they'd kind of made peace with it right. by the time she talked about it. Whereas being trans... It's still a thing. You know, we're getting there and we're seeing trans people on TV, we're invading your literary salons. It's kind of <laughs> a little bit at a time, it's kind of happening, but it's still like my everyone, my friends, my family, my colleagues, they all thought they had me pegged. Mm. You know, we, we dealt with that one in the 90s, it's a gay. And so there wasn't anything to think about. And to be honest, it was a surprise to me how surprised people were because of that cherry filth stuff. You know, when we performed as cherry filth, I was in fur coats and makeup and heels and stuff. And so, you know, when I said, oh, lol, I'm a woman now, you know, I was expecting people to be like, well, duh. But they weren't. They were like legit surprised. And I was kind of like, all oh, right, okay. So I realized there was work to do and you can't expect people to just be cool with things overnight because of course I'd had a good 18 months of kind of getting things straight in my head mm. and then and then when when people young people write to me all the time after this book is gay saying oh my mum's being a real bitch about me being a lesbian and I'm kind of like well when did you tell her and they're like oh half an hour ago and I'm kind of like well <laughs> you, you might need to give her a minute kind of and, so, and that was that was true of my parents as well yeah they needed a minute yeah they needed a minute um, so this is um, this is a memoir. It's very clearly for adults. How was it writing a memoir and and, and being in that in that different space? It was weird because, like I said, I mean, I did not. Want, I wanted to do a slightly sort of Lena Dunhamy book of polemicy essays. Um, it's really really super unusual. Like it's like a unicorn in that the publisher came to me with money and said, we would like you to do this book. Mm. Whereas in the past, obviously, I've had to beg publishers to publish me. So it was slightly different. And they were like, oh, I would love you to do a memoir. And I was like, I would rather die. Um, <laughs> but so I sort of said to them, oh, I'll do this like Leonard Dunham thing and it's going to be wicked. But then I realised there was no way that I could talk about my experience of gender and not talk about my childhood because mm. that was when gender first got to me, kind of. 
And so it was a case of I looked to people like you in that, you know, I read Maggie and Me and realised, oh, you know, and then well, I can have a sense of humour. Mm. I had to study um, Sidey with Rosie mm. as, as a young person. <laughs> and that's where that sentence ends. Right. And, you know, like, you know, reading sort of these books, like, obviously, Catelyn Moran's How to Be a Woman was mm. amazing. Amy Poehler's Yes, Please was amazing. Yeah. Um, and so I realised, you know, you can just be you. Yeah. And actually, I think... And that's I, what you need in a while. You need you yeah. to be you. So we don't want you to be somebody else. And I spent, I spent, you know, I was very lucky in that I got published quite young and I got published, maybe, I would say, maybe too soon. And it took me a few books to realise you can just sound like you. You don't have to sound like Philip Pullman, or you don't have to sound like Laurie Lee. You know, you can yeah. just do you. And particularly with this one, I was just kind of like, do you know what, I'm going to do me, and if people like it, they like it, and if they don't, there's not a lot I can do about it anyway, really. Will, so. your, will your YA uh, fiction and other fiction um, um, have a, a different voice now? Do you, think, do you think that there'll be a part of yourself that you're accessing, or...? using or not, not suppressing in some way, like the voice? Well, or? this is really deep. Are you ready? Yeah. It's well deep. I'm sure it will. Um, my books were my way of being a woman before I started my transition. Like, all my books had female main characters. Yeah. And up until the transition, the first question I got asked at any sort of event like this was, how do you write such good female characters? Um, so thankfully that one stopped, because it was reductive. But... Um, <laughs> but um, that, that was how, you know, I, I couldn't be a girl in real life, so I did it through my fiction. And, you know, it never once occurred to me to write boy characters. But I think, just in general, from a writing point of view, I've realised that, you know, you don't... You can just go for it in terms of you. And I think it was, like, by my fourth novel, All of the Above, where I think you can really hear me coming through. But it took... There's nothing wrong with the first three, but... You know, the fourth one, and certainly the one that's out next year, I, I couldn't be bothered anymore. It was kind of like, do you know what? It's a Juno Dawson novel, this is what we're doing. And I did have to move publisher because the original one was quite horrified at how much sex and swearing there was. Mm -hmm. But I was kind of like, this is kind of, you know, this is how I speak and this is how young people speak and I'm not going to apologise for young adults anymore. And I'm not going to write what you want me to write. I mean, I know, I know that you can ask some questions afterwards, but does anyone have any questions now? Yeah? Okay, well, in that case. Well, no, they're going to come and get you afterwards. I know that they're all coming. Oh, yes, please. Okay. Mike has one. Hi, Mike. That's my husband that I found about. I would like to say, I'd like to know if there was one change you think everybody in this room so the, the, the question is if there was one change that everybody in this room could could make that would to the way they dealt with gender that would, that would make the world less gendered or defeat the forces of, of gender defeat the, the empire um, it's difficult and we have to as somebody from a minority group you have to kind of preface every sentence with I do not speak for the trans community but um, I think it's about being less apologetic and it's about identifying where you're stopping yourself. Like, oh, I can't wear that. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't buy this Spice Girls album because I'm a boy. You know, it's about... And that's why I love Alexis's writing, actually, because he is 
unapologetically unsnobby. You're my favourite music writer. Um, you know, there's not many music writers who would write about Girls Loud, you know, and things like that. You know, it's, it's about just not having fucks to give. And I think very often when both men and women say, oh, I, I can't do that, you know, it's, that is gender, you know, from, you know, I'm very lucky to be friends with people like Louise O'Neill, the writer, who is so frank about, you know, she will talk about her sex life and she will talk about one night stands. Not many women do, and there's a reason for that. It's because of gender. It's because, mm. oh no, I can't do that, I'll be called a slut. Oh no, I can't do that, people will think less of me. And so it's about living your least apologetic self, I think. That's a brilliant answer. So may we all live our least apologetic selves. Please join me in thanking Juno Dawson and Alexis Fatini. So you think you know somebody and then you read their memoir. I've known Juno for years and let me tell you, I learned a lot. If you want to hear more of Juno's wit, wisdom and revelations, her memoir, The Gender Games, is available now. For more literary loveliness, information and tickets for our events, head to our website www.theliterarysalon.co.uk and don't forget our other podcasts brimming with brilliance. Thank you for listening.